Hey guys, it's Brian Jodas here with another episode of Pick Up the Six podcast. This one was hard at times to get through. My guest today is John Quartz. I've known John since he was six years old. I was nine. When at that young age, his father, Major Thomas Quartz, was killed in combat during Operation Desert Storm. Please lean in and listen. And when Memorial Day gets here, or even if you're listening to this after the holiday, please think about John, his two brothers, his mom, Julie, and his dad, and know how incredibly grateful I am that John would share his story with us. It's not something he does a lot, and I know we don't take it for granted. Join me as we honor Major Thomas Quartz and Lieutenant Colonel Donnie Holland on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. John Quartz, welcome to Pick Up the Six Podcast. Thanks, buddy. Happy to be here. <laughs> it's uh, it's wild to me that this is the first time I've probably seen you in 20-something years, yet yeah. here we sit in the same room, yeah. uh, and we've got a powerful and important story to tell. So I'm grateful for you hopping in that seat, being, being willing to tell it. As we uh, get closer to Memorial Day, we're going to talk about a heavy conversation, but also an important one, man. So I'm Absolutely. grateful for the fact that you're willing to do it, and, and don't take it for granted uh, that you are willing to do it. Happy to be here. So John Quartz, the Air Force man. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing in the Air Force these days? Uh, so uh, right now, currently at this present time, I am uh, learning German. Uh, so I got a eight-month-long course to learn German, and then around January of next year, I'll be uh, going for an officer exchange program uh, assignment to fly the Eurofighter with the uh, Luftwaffe. So he's preparing to head to Germany, uh, and it's going to be quite an experience, man. You're going through quite an experience to, to even get to that point. I mean, you've flown F-15s pretty much your entire Air Force career, uh, yep. and we're going to get into how you got there and the road that leads you there as well. But what's this next experience? I mean, it feels like it's going to be a little different. I mean, what's it going to be like? Uh, I don't even know yet. <laughs> it's uh, I'm excited for it. I can tell you that. Uh, going from flying the mighty MACD Warhorse big heavy bomber Strike Eagle to a super nimble Ferrari of an airplane is going to be quite an experience. Yeah. Not having a Wizzo sitting behind me to change my radios for me is going to be a struggle. Quite an experience. It'll be fine. You're going to be up there. <laughs> I was going to say, you're going to be up there all by yourself. You usually yeah. have somebody backseating, oh, yeah. doing totally. all the hard work really yeah. for you. You just got to fly the thing. I don't have to key a radio to have a great conversation uh, right. when we're sitting in the cast wheel, but now I'm going to have to. So it's going to be it's gonna be a slight learning curve. That's right. I, met, I mentioned off the top, I've known John since he was six years old. I was about nine at the time, uh, we're bonded together by a tragic event that happened in his family's life and in his life. And we'll get to that in a little bit because it's tied towards his dad, Major Thomas Quartz, who also flew the F-15 as well. And there's uh, some pretty extensive family history there. And we lost your dad in Operation Desert Storm. We'll get into the details of that, how that happened, and get a little reflection on that. But before that, let's get to know him a little bit. I want to get to know him a little bit. I want to know Thomas Quartz, better known as Teak in the uh, Air Force community. So what piqued his interest in flying and in the Air Force? Because if, from what I've heard from his stories, it, it was a bit of an unusual path for him to get there. Uh, yeah, I would say unusual. Uh, so he grew up in Rochelle, Illinois, a very small farming town, uh, not a lot going on. Uh, but the one thing they did have was farming. And the one thing farms need out there is crop dusting. Okay. So starting in high school uh, and then a little bit in college, he worked for 
indirectly with Del Monte, uh, but he worked for a family friend, uh, Clarence Staten, who had a uh, crop dusting business. They flew everything from Piper Cubs to Stearman's to air tractors uh, and everything. And he was there throughout that, and he was a flagger. So he would drive a truck with a big flag sticking out the top so that the crop dusters knew where they need to go, where they've been on yeah. every single field. Uh, and most of those guys were retired military from World War II. Clarence himself was a P-47 pilot uh, in World War II. Uh, so if I had to guess and look back, uh, that would be where his interest started. Yeah. So getting, you're standing there in the field, right, waving the flag, but you, it's just planes over yeah. the top. So you're kind of a big part of it. Yeah, a, bi- a huge part of it. And, I mean, you're having big old radial... 450 horsepower, 985 cubic inch engines flying over you all day, and it's just smells like America. It feels like America. <laughs> it's right. amazing. So that's right. Uh, yeah. So I think that's where he initially got the interest in flying, uh, and he started taking lessons at his local airport there in Rochelle. Uh, and then when he got to U of I, uh, they had a aviation program where you could take a class, and that class would working towards your pilot's license. So he graduated U of I with uh, his pilot's license. So so where does he go from there, right? So love of flying sort of instilled in being part of this crop dusting yeah. uh, job, right? Yeah. Uh, gets to the University of Illinois. Where does, where does it take him from there? So from there, he goes to medical school. He majored in biology okay. there, uh, you know, top of his class, just doing great. And so he goes to medical school, continues flying, uh, continues the interest, uh, and then uh, during that time, he started talking with recruiters, and he's in medical school, and the recruiters go, you're in medical school, so you, you want to go in as a doctor in right, the Air Force? And he's right, like, right. No, I want to go in as a pilot. That's what I want to do. And they're like, yeah, you can't do that. We're not going to waste an advanced degree right. on, you know, on somebody, so... You can go in as a doctor or nothing, or see you later. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. So uh, he fought that for many years, and then he moved to Iowa uh, and started his residency and met a recruiter out there, and the recruiter said, oh, I got a great idea. We're just going to tell him that you have an advanced degree. We're not going to tell him that you have a medical degree and you're in your residency. We're not going to tell anybody that. Just sure. You have an advanced degree. That's just need-to-know information right. at this point. Right, right. It'll be fine. And right. then you can go in, get a pilot slot, and it'll be great. And this is my dad just uh, – my mom told me my dad called and was like, I've, I finally got I'm it. I'm in, yeah. I found a recruiter that was that just tells found me, the right just guy. tell him you have yeah. an advanced degree and everything will be fine. They'll let you right in. He's like, so, there you go. So uh, shortly thereafter, he gets a uh, acceptance slot to officer training school and uh, cuts his residency short. So he finished – Almost two years of his residency of a three-year program uh, and went into the Air Force because he was approaching the age cutoff, if you want to go in as pilot. Yeah, how old was he when all this was happening? So he was 27 okay. at the time he got in, and he sh- uh, quickly turned 28, which was the cutoff, I believe. Wow. Uh, yeah, so he cut it short, went to officer training school, got into pilot training, and then, boom, hit the cutoff. Where, where does he go? Do, do, you, uh, do you know the timeline of from pilot training to how he ultimately ends up at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, flying fighters uh, with the so fourth So he group. started pilot training in 78, finished in seven, uh, no, he finished pilot training in 81, okay. I believe. Yep. Uh, and then- Where was he doing pilot training at? That was at Columbus. 
good old Columbus. That's where I was born. Missed that place. Yeah, that's where I was uh, born. Two, not two to go of, back, though. Not two of to go three back. of the Jodas boys born at, in Columbus. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so goes to Columbus, does IFF there, uh, gets the uh, Mighty C model out of pilot training. Okay. So goes to IFF. Uh, I'm not sure where they had it at that time. And then goes to the C model FTU, and I believe it was Luke. Okay. So he is top gun out of that program, uh, top of his class out of pilot training. Uh, so he, you know, he's doing okay. Uh, and then goes to the 94th at Langley for C models. Where'd you do pilot training at? Columbus. So you're going to hear some interwoven <laughs> themes throughout this interview. Just, just the wildness of one, how small the air force is, but just the way things can parallel dad, pilot training Columbus Air Force Base, son, pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base. So he ultimately ends up as an Air Force pilot physician, which there's not a lot of them in the Air Force when he's there. I mean, five or six, I think, at the time. So what's that life look like? So he, while he was in the 94th, uh, he met uh, these guys that were flying physicians. He said they were doctors and they're fighter pilots. So He's like, this is perfect. Yeah, exactly. Because up to this point... Uh, one weekend a month, he was moonlighting okay. through pilot training, through officer training school, through the FT doing the physician doctor model. Yeah. While he was at Langley, he was doing that the whole time. So yeah, so he ends up meeting those guys at Langley. Uh, he, I think there were two there at the time, and there were only five in the program. So he met them and started talking about it. Uh, during that time, he went from the ninety uh, fourth to the twenty seventh. Uh, still at Langley, uh, and then he was moved out to Brooks to go do his aerospace residency. So he finished his residency, and then quickly thereafter, uh, he, he got reassigned to the brand spanking new, shiny, smells like a new car, F-15E Strike Eagle. All right, let's get into the time frame of August 1990. All right, and we're going to talk about the powerful and, and emotional part of this story. So it's early August 1990. We fast forward a little bit here. The dictator Saddam Hussein and Iraq invade Kuwait. Shortly after Christmas of that year, you've got fighter pilots from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base that are ready to deploy, and they're headed off to war. It's Operation Desert Storm. And so it's January 16th, 1991, and air campaigns start. Uh, and we've got fighter pilots and we've got fighter squadrons that are engaging the enemy during Operation Desert Storm. And so when these air campaigns start, they're striking integrated air defense systems. A six ship goes in and only five come out. And on that sixth is Major Thomas Quartz and Lieutenant Colonel Donnie Holland in that F-15 Strike Eagle. Tell uh, me the story that, that you know. Yeah, so they took off as a six ship out of some horrible desert somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, they went to hit the tanker, approach the Iraqi border, uh, drop down low, evade uh, SAM systems and early detection radar and all that fancy stuff. Uh, and they were on TF, which was also a brand new fancy system that everyone was excited about. So they're going in low uh, to hit targets uh, with uh, the super uh, technical Mark 82s. Uh, so have a lot of Mark 82s and their plan is to stay low and then loft them into their target and then egress as soon as possible. So uh, the, I believe it was number three uh, was unable to release weapons. So he circled back around behind uh, number six, my dad and uh, balls. And so uh, that's when, as soon as they get into their loft, weapons released, they're in the egress turn uh, back home. And then 
most likely that's when they got hit with AAA. We don't need to dwell on it and even go back into that moment too much because you're a six-year-old kid. Yep. So the memories are probably a little hazy and there's certain things that you remember that you probably don't even want to talk about. Um, but it is a devastating moment for yep. your family. Absolutely. To the level you do want to talk about. My brothers and I were four, six, and eight. So uh, it's a lot of things that are, you know, you don't remember everything and you don't necessarily want to. Uh, and at that age, you don't, don't even necessarily understand. Yeah. So, yeah. You're growing up. At what age do you start to process process it a little bit more, take it in a little bit more? I mean, it's probably an ongoing thing for you. Uh, yeah, I think ongoing's an understatement. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I can't pinpoint a certain time where things changed or, you know, I recognized anything different. Uh, being in the Air Force has changed a lot of the ways I view things, I'd say, uh, because, you know, now I'm with a lot of people who understand the meaning of sacrifice. Mm. They understand the job we do. Uh, and prior to that, I don't think I knew anybody that really understood. I had a, I've met a lot of people that are like, oh, wow, that's, that's a great story. And I'm like, it's not a great story, dude. Yeah. Like, that's my life. It's, it's a lot of things, but great is not something I would call it but yeah what what's the so you said you know the, the community understands it when you when it does come up when you do talk about it with other pilots or with even other members of the military what is that is that conversation different i mean what's that reception like i don't know uh man i mean all all the guys in my last squadron uh in the triple trace lancers uh i mean everybody had into war mm -hmm. through uh, killing ISIS and doing all that. And, you know, that's that's not the same war that, you know, guys went into in 91. It's yeah. it's hanging out in the two block, just slinging weapons and squashing ants. Like, but, so I don't know if we necessarily understand that, uh, but we understand what it means to go forth knowing that, something bad might happen. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's, um, it's a long journey, man. It's a long journey from January, 1991 to ongoing efforts to things you've done in those airplanes in your career. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible to think about the amount of time that has spanned between that and then the parallels in your career that have played out. Now, you think about that at all? Uh, yeah. I mean, every single time I went on a sortie while I was deployed, I flew over the exact same area where, you know, that happened. Uh, yeah, flying over Iraq. It's It was a mental question. Not question, but it was, it was interesting. Hmm. Being like, here we are. We freed them from a dictator years ago. And now we're here freeing them from monsters known as ISIS. Yeah. It was, I thought about that a lot. I'm not sure if anybody else did, but I definitely did. Uh, and it was, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, it's different for you. It's, yeah. I mean, it is. It is more personal. It's just, it is. Yeah. 
right? Um, and you're flying with fellow fighter pilots who might have the same drive and desire to eliminate the enemy, but there is something (laughs) more personal to it when you're up there and when you've got your hand on the stick and when you think about what you're working to combat while you're up there. I I can only imagine how different it is because you're the only one up there. You're the only one up there who's been through that. Um, That's a lot of weight, man. It's a lot of weight. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. It is, uh, it is a tough time for your family. It's a tough time for a relatively tight Air Force community. And then you think about the community and the people back home in this little town of Goldsboro, North Carolina, where this rather elite uh, fighter wing is located at. It's a small community there. Um, and not to dwell on it too much, because we'll come back to it a little bit, but my dad is a major at the time, is a flight commander, and the way the, um, the, way the setup worked at the time is flight commander stayed back when the squadron went off to fight. So he was back, and he, we were talking the other day, and he was telling me a few stories uh, about that, and interestingly enough, he was the family liaison officer that was assigned to your family throughout that process. And so he spent quite a bit of time with your mom and with you guys and, and had to be the one who came to the house today to officially tell her that they had ID'd the remains and, and all that. It's, and it's emotional time. And again, we don't need to get into all of that right now, but it just shows how tight knit the community is and, and how, um, we always leave no man behind and, and how that community is always there for each other. Have you felt that as your Air Force career advanced? And we'll get into how you got there because there's some similarities, a road less travel. But did you feel that as your Air Force career advanced when, when sometimes you walk into a room and they're like, courts, there's not a lot? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, I mean, yes, that, that started from day one before I even got to pilot training. Uh, but yeah, the Strike Eagle community itself is, is pretty small. We only have three operational... Uh, bases that we uh, utilize and you get to know pretty much everybody in the community. Yeah. And then uh, the background of that is all, uh, most of the SIM instructors that we have that we utilize when we go through the B course and when we have SIMs in uh, the ops squadrons and in the FTU, they all, for the most part, flew with my dad. Uh, So when I was in the B course, (laughs) I remember... Uh, I walked into my first day of academics, you know, tail between my legs, scared to death. Yeah. Holy crap. Here I am. I've hit the big times and I have no idea what's going on. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. What am I even doing? here? (laughs) Uh, so, uh, we go through, uh, at least infinity hours of, uh, academics. Um, and I don't remember anything from it. And we have a test probably that afternoon because that makes sense. Uh, and the instructor, as we're all leaving, I was sitting up front probably cause I was trying to be a nerd or something. And, uh, as I'm leaving the door, the last one out of our class, the instructor says, you know, you look just like your dad. And I turned around and I had no idea what to say. Right. Was, yeah. What do you say in that yeah. moment? Yeah. Yeah. It was unreal. I remember that. I'll probably never forget that. So yeah. Uh, that was my first, I mean, that was day one or two of yeah. being in the strike eagle community and yeah that pretty much uh hit me pretty quick there so uh and it's never changed yeah i was gonna say did you did you did you realize early that look this 
I'm going to get a lot of that. And, uh, and I've got, a. I mean, I don't know. What's, what's the, what's the thought process there? I don't know. Uh, I, I guess you could say I didn't want to identify with that. Um, yeah, I remember, uh, uh, Master Yates was the squadron commander while I was going through the B course and we had flown together where I was on his wing most likely. And so we're walking back to the squadron and we're getting close to graduation. He goes, Hey, so I saw you wanted to stay here. Do you want to go to the chiefs? Cause that was your dad's squadron. And I just, I was really taken back and, right. and I just said, well, if I deserve it. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he was like, what do you mean if you deserve it? And I was like, well, if, if yeah. I'm not top of my class and I'm not top of the guys of the list that requested Seymour, then I should get what I deserve. And he was like, no, you do deserve it. I'm like, uh, okay. But that was just one instance of, you know, I don't know. I didn't yeah. want to identify it. Yeah, I get it. Uh, dad pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base, son pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base, dad flying for the 335th Fighter Squadron, the Chiefs, son flying for the 335th Fighter Squadron, the Chiefs, uh, leading mid-killer to date, still to date, if to, memory serves correct. To date. To date. <laughs> I love it. Leading mid-killer to date. Uh, we got more Chief paraphernalia <laughs> in uh, Lieutenant General R.J. Jodis's, uh squadron bar, and we love every piece of it. All right, so let's go back, man. Let, let's go back on your story because we're getting these parallels, and it's so interesting how it all happens. You graduate from ECU in 2008, and you go right to the Air Force, right? Neg. <laughs> so how's uh, this play out? Uh, yeah, so I graduated with a business degree because, uh, you know, you can do just about anything with that. Uh, and got a job with a company, uh, and there I was, just doing the daily grind, doing my job, uh, having – Zero fulfillment and questioning every decision I ever made in my life. (laughs) So uh, while I was in college and uh, working that job, I was fairly close to Goldsboro, so I would be lucky enough every time to, every now and then, to see a Strike Eagle fly over or a two-ship or four-ship. And I would be the one person in a crowd of people that would just stop and hold up traffic just to look up and, and just see them. So I had always thought about doing it. Uh but I never really acted on it. Uh, and that's mostly because I didn't want to scare my family. They've been through enough trauma. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, do that to them. Uh, but eventually, uh, after working my job for four years, uh, I just finally said, all right, that's enough. Yeah. Let's, let's do this. You know, it's there. Yeah. Right? Like you feel like it's inevitable. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, started talking to recruiters. Uh, that didn't go so great. Uh, but here we are. Yeah. Made it happen. So what'd mom say? <laughs> uh, she was excited. She was excited. From the get-go. Uh, it seems like you might've been more nervous say? about having to talk to her about it. At my pilot training graduation, she said it was bittersweet. Sure. Yeah. So like any good mom, she's excited to see me follow my dreams and be happy. Yeah. But yes, I'm sure she's pretty darn nervous. So it's a small Air Force. We've talked about this before. It's a small community. Your officer training school, you run into somebody that knew your dad there. Tell me that story. Uh, man, I mean, every place I've been to, I've ran yeah. into somebody. Uh, when I was getting uh, my eyes checked out up at Wright Pat, the doc there said, hey, I knew your dad. You're doing great. See you later. Nice to meet you. And then 
I uh, get to Columbus, and turns out when once I got to uh, IFF, my one of my sim instructors was my dad's flight commander. Uh, I mean, everywhere I go, I just can't help but run into people. It's it's a terribly small air force. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base. It's 2013. You graduate your class 1313. That's right. Dad was class. Of them all. That's right. <laughs> no kidding. Double <laughs> 13s. Dad was class 8201, uh, mm-hmm. which is pretty incredible to think about. And you get assigned the F-15E Strike Eagle. Yeah. Take me into that moment, John. I can only imagine. I've been at a few of those assignment nights. I've had the distinct honor of watching Guys and gals get that aircraft assignment. I mean, it's a massive party. Yeah. There's some drinks flowing. I mean, there's oh, a lot yeah. happening. A lot of drinks flowing. So maybe from what you remember then, uh, I take me back into that night. definitely remember that. So, uh, yeah, so there's assignment night, and then there's graduation. And there's track select uh, and all that fun stuff. So after the T6, you get track select. Uh, you get either the T38 or the T1. And then after that, you get assignment night. So you get your jet in the Air Force. Uh, so, uh, when I was called up, uh, you know, they give you a little roast and all that good stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, was really accurate. And then, uh, I was, yeah, I was really nervous. So I actually took two steps back and stood behind the screen so I couldn't see because I was really nervous. You just got the reaction? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Well, so, uh, so, you know. So, Lieutenant Quartz, what airframe are you going to find yourself flying in next? And, you know, the pictures pop up and all that stuff, and I can't see it. Right. But I get rushed by my entire class. Uh, so, did you, I mean, you get And they carry me around, and I literally saw the last second glimpse of a Strike Eagle on the screen before it went to the next person. <laughs> <laughs> so, I almost missed uh, getting to see what I got. But I, yeah, I, I don't know how to describe that moment. I was beyond excited. It was, yeah, something else. And I think... Anybody can say that for their assignment night is no matter what aircraft you get, you are more than excited. And it's just, you've put in a year of your life just on the grindstone and you finally get to go back to putting your nose on the grindstone (laughs) all over again. Once you get that assignment, what's the timeline to get you to Seymour Johnson? Uh, You have a 3.335 month... uh, IFF, Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals, where you get to go kind of BFM in a T-38. Uh, you get to go do a couple range uh, rides and some other things. Uh, and then uh, you get to go to the, well, scratch that. So then you get to go to your base. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was probably five months after assignment night, I finally got to start my B course uh, in the Strike Eagle. So it didn't take that long. When you get to Seymour Johnson, the same reminder, guys, the same Air Force base that his family was at when he was a kid, the same Air Force base where his dad flew out of the 335th Fighter Squadron during Operation Desert Storm, you're initially in a different squadron. So you come in, right? You've got to train in a different squadron. So where did you start? So there's two FTUs, training squadrons, at Seymour. So the 333rd, uh, the Lancers, and then the, uh, uh, the Eagles that are there. So... Uh, I was in the Eagles, uh, so it's three months of academics, six months of flying, um, and it's just a fire hose of information and data that nobody can absorb, but you just keep treading water, and eventually uh, you find the service on graduation night. 
So <laughs> the story goes, you, you show up to this air force base, uh, to be a member of the 334th Eagles, but you're driving a 1967 Bronco that's got a 335th Chief sticker on the back. Yeah. So tell uh, me about that. How does how so does that go over? That was my dad's 1982 Jeep CJ7. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. All right. So General Joe just told me it was a 67 yeah. Bronco. So we'll we'll give him get some fact, we'll give him the air checkers on dice <laughs> there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When, he, when so, he listens to this, he's going to be so mad at himself. <laughs> I promise you, John, he's going to be so mad at himself. Forgiveness comes in battles. Right. Tell me what kind of car it was again. Uh, so the 1982 Jeep CJ7 right. uh, that I still have. All my brothers drove it to high school. My mom never got rid of it. And yeah. that was the best decision she ever made. Yeah. Uh, and then after my little brother graduated high school and moved on, I told my mom I wanted it. So I've had it ever since. Uh, yeah, and I proudly have my dad's old stickers on it he has a c model sticker a strike eagle sticker a chief sticker and a chief's license plate on the front yep um yeah and i drove it around the base and i never thought anything of it is this the chief's license plate where it's got the f-15 and the chief is right yeah. back behind the wings yep i can't take all the credit on this but fun fact <laughs> nobody will really care that much but my dad m- might have been he wasn't the squadron commander at the time, but there was something going on where they needed a design for the new license plate. And we had this old chief liquor decanter bottle. And I was like, what if we took the profile of that bottle and they made it into an image and they dropped it behind the jet? So I'm taking some of the credit. Yeah, I'm okay with that. For the chief <laughs> license it. plate. Who's going to stop you? I don't think anybody can... <laughs> I mean, clearly we're not fact-checking everything nope. today, but I don't know that anybody <laughs> could go back into the chief archives and point to the fact that that's the case. You're in the same squadron that Dad's flying in, the same squadron he's flying in when we lost him. There is a lot of pressure that likely comes with that, and again, there's probably some of those moments where it comes up. Um, and, and so any of those you want to share with me, just what that journey in that squadron specifically was like? Uh... Yeah, so being in the Chiefs uh, was awesome. I mean, I I was so lucky to be there, so happy to be there. And once again, I didn't identify with that. You know, I never, I didn't really tell people. And I think the only people who really knew were from my B course uh, that had found out since we'd been together for nine months. Uh, But yeah, one day um, I had probably been uh in there for a month so i'm doing mq uh you know i'm just a brand new shit pants in the squadron uh and uh there's a roll call going on i'm super excited because it's my first ops squadron roll call and like any good lieutenant i'm sitting widow in the vault so i missed the entire thing uh (laughs) so uh earlier that day my squadron commander at the time uh just pulled me aside and said hey uh i don't know if you've never been to an ops roll call but we do a real Strike Eagle roll call, and we call all the names of all the Strike Eagle bros that we've lost. Yep. Uh, and obviously your dad is one of them, and I don't want you to freak out. So I just wanted to let you know uh, that's, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, okay, I didn't know that. Thanks for letting me know. And, of course, I missed that part of the roll call. Uh, but I finished my widow, ship, widow shift, uh, lock up the vault, and I walk into the bar, and probably half the bar, like, just stops. And I'm like, uh, 
Hey don't guys. stop all the fun on my account, uh, is there any food left over yeah. for me? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, we got some popcorn over here. Yeah, for and so uh, Harpoon walks up to me. He goes, holy shit, dude. Teak was your dad? I was like, yeah, he was. He was like, wow. And that was it. That was I was it. like, okay, I'm going to get some food. <laughs> you guys got Chick-fil-A? <laughs> I no, just, man. yeah. That, so I think that was the first, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe realization on everyone's part uh, that that was my history. Uh, but, but still, there, you know, I don't advertise it. I don't identify with it. So people, I, I think there's plenty of people that yeah. I flew with multiple times that probably still don't know. So, yeah. I want to talk about what you're up to now. Before we do that, though, we will mention that the fourth medical group hospital redesignated as the Thomas Courts Hospital on 6 August 1993 by special order. Uh, they also named the simulator after Lieutenant Colonel Donnie yeah. Holland, who was his Wizzo yeah. on that F-15 on that night. And so the legacy of those two men continues on today uh, and things you drove by and things that you participated in. Uh, and uh, pretty incredible that regardless of what happened, the legacy always lives on that Thomas Courts Hospital and then the Donnie Holland simulator there as well. Guys, as you, as you get to Memorial Day on Monday, remember, it's not just a day to be barbecuing. It's not just a day to be partying and hanging out. Thousands of Americans who have paid the ultimate price for our freedom and liberty to be able to do that. One of them sitting across the way from me right now, his father is part of that fraternity, and we're incredibly grateful, John, for that. And we don't take it for granted. We don't take it lightly. The fact what even takes us sit in the seat today and talk about it, right? I really don't take that for granted. I know our listeners don't as well. And if anything, we can simply just say, thank you. What are you up to now, man? I mean, you've got a family, you got kids, yeah. your Air Force career has progressed. You're learning, you're learning German. Yeah. So what's going on for you now? Yeah. Ich spreche ein bisschen Deutsch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Learning German. Going to go fly the Eurofighter here in another year or so, uh, as a exchange officer. We're taking all the kids. They're going to learn German whether they like it or not. Yeah. How many kids do you have? Tell me about your family. Three kids. Uh, so Staten, uh, is the oldest. He's six. Huxley is the middle, uh, and he is almost four. And then, uh, both boys. And then, uh, my wife was so happy the last one was a girl. So finally so, a little princess shows oh, up. Oh, yeah, a little princess shows up, and that she is. Uh, Della, uh, she turns uh, two here this summer, so uh, three kids. Yeah. yeah. You're one of three boys. I'm yep. one of three boys. Uh, our first child was a girl. <laughs> we ended up with two girls. <laughs> Uh, you had the two boys off the top. How's that little girl rounded things out uh, with those rambunctious she's tough. boys? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't think she has much of an option, right? No. Yeah, she's tough. Yeah, we're trying to rain down on the hitting and pushing. So, <laughs> yeah, she's real tough. What are you? Uh, what are you looking forward to, man? About this next this next journey? Uh, man. There's so many unknowns about uh, where this is going to take us. Uh, I've known a lot of guys who have done exchange gigs. You know, going to fly the Hornet in Australia. Uh, and they said it was it was awesome. It was great. Uh, they didn't have to learn another language mm -hmm. uh, to do mm -hmm. that. Um, and I mean, I would like to argue that Australians are pretty darn similar to Americans in 
terms of uh, knowing how to have a good time and flying airplanes. So, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be something. I don't know. I have no idea. We're going to take every opportunity to travel Europe, see the world. Uh, and then where it's going to take us after that, I have no idea. Maybe have a couple nice German beers along the way. Oh, yeah, and just a few. Just, just a, few. a few. Let's get another beer out of your cooler. Yeah. We're going to hang out and catch up a little bit more. Guys, so incredibly grateful for John Quartz joining us today to share the story of his father and his incredibly unique but similar parallel journey through the United States Air Force. John, we are so incredibly grateful for all you've done for our country and all you continue to do. Go out there, keep kicking ass. Guys, he's John Quartz. I'm Brian Jodas. This has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.